You're listening to The Real Word Podcast, produced by Reading Opens Minds. I'm Lauren, and in this episode, we're talking about the book Pleasantville by Attica Locke. Kirkus Reviews says of Pleasantville, race, politics, and petty grievances muddy the quest for justice when a young election volunteer is kidnapped and murdered. A thriller wrapped in an involving story of community and family dynamics. Locke serves up a panorama of nuanced characters and writes with intelligence and depth. We chose this book because it is set in an election year in the 90s, both for local and national seats. And Attica is a local author and a writer-producer for the hit TV drama Empire. She was kind enough to come and sit with me at the sound studio at Emerson College in L.A. for a chat. In terms of college, I really believed that I was going to become a movie director. That was really the plan. I went to Northwestern. I was a film student there. And so writing was always the thing that was going to get me to make a movie. So I was interested in writing to the degree that I wanted to direct what I wrote. But I wasn't really thinking of my life as a professional writer at all. Uh, I'd written all the time. I'd written since I was a girl. But I just thought that was just a fun thing you did during the summer. I didn't think of it as a career. Um, And so it was a kind of very long and windy road to here. Um, I, I went, so I went to Northwestern. I graduated. I moved to L.A. immediately. I started temping. I started temping in um, at different uh, entertainment companies, and and I did ultimately ended up doing the Sundance Feature Filmmakers Lab. So I was really on this path to make a movie. And when I left Sundance at 24, I had a movie deal, and you know this company that does not even exist anymore <laughs> was going to make my film, and I was location scouting for that film when they said, nah, we're actually not going to make it. No. Yes. Smack in the middle of your process. It was. Wow. And Pre-production. I never had my heart broken professionally. I didn't know that was a thing. I was oh. devastated. And the things that they said to me, and we're talking 2000, so we're talking what, 16, almost 17 years ago. Yeah. The things that they were saying to me were of that time, it's still things that we're fighting now, which is about color. They were saying the reasons why what I had fundamentally put on the page that was so my voice was not marketable. We could not sell this story overseas. We can't raise money for the film overseas because nobody in the rest of the globe is really that interested in black culture, which what? is laughable. They yeah, said that. Yeah, there's no jazz in, in France. There's no <laughs> hip-hop in Japan. I don't know what the hell you people are talking about. <laughs> but at the time, I was so young, I didn't have the comebacks. I, yeah. what I, it landed on me like, you personally don't want me. The world doesn't personally want me. And yeah. I just kind of shut down. And I was, like I said, young. I also cannot believe, and I'm not advocating any of this, but I was married at 24. I've been— uh, Wow. We're still, I didn't know you guys were married that we've long. Been married forever, and we're still together and have a little girl. But I was newly married. I was broke, and my husband um, was about to go to law school. Wow. And I said to myself, "Well, nobody wants to make what's in my heart, but I can write. Maybe I can just write what other people want to make. I'll just write for them." And I became a studio screenwriter for hire for over a decade. And this is all before you even thought about writing a novel. Oh God, yeah. No, I wasn't thinking about a book at all. And and so I. For, like I said, over a decade, I wrote for every major studio, and not one of those movies ever got made. 
Just because of the way that things and happen the, in yeah, Hollywood. And then, and then, so then I was like, Attica, the joke is on you. <laughs> you you put your whole soul into a closet and you said, I'll just make what Hollywood wants to make. And they didn't make those things either, just because of the business of it. And I got really um, disenchanted. And I felt like I'm writing for people who fundamentally don't love to read. Um, I was writing for executives. I was writing just so I could go to meetings and get that little bottle of water they give you in the meeting and do the drive to and from. And it just felt empty. And I I, I remember very clearly walking into Skylight Books, um, Los Feliz, and I, I went through into the fiction section. For whatever reason, I just walked around picking up books and reading their first page. And I probably hung out in there for like 40, 45 minutes. And when I left, I said to myself, I can write a book. Wow. That's what did it? I said, I think I can do this. That's incredible. And you said that you like to write about things after the fact, not at the height of the conflict. Yeah, I do like to write about times of transition. Yes. And I'm drawn to doing things either right before something jumped off or right after it. And I think in in each of the books, you kind of feel that. Um, yeah. I think with the first book, my book, Blackwater Rising, it's after the movement. It's the fallout of the civil rights movement. And the cutting season was very much after Obama. Like, what does it look like in that first year? How do we navigate hope and change? Yeah, because that was 2009. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the last book, kind of um, without giving anything away, because you haven't gotten all the way through. but I'm halfway. We're all halfway. But I will not give anything away, <laughs> okay. but it is... Um, did Neil do it? I don't think he did. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Oh, man. I'm not going to say anything. Um, but it kind of um, intuits things that are coming in the new millennium. Now to our kids and their reactions. Did right? you know this is a sequel? Yes. yes. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, the Blackwater Rising and the Cutting Season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... She's written three novels. Blackwater Rising was in the 80s with Jay. Uh -huh. Then she skipped over Jay, years. wrote another one. And then 15 years later, she wrote this about Jay, who she says is kind of like her dad. Jay's kind of like her dad. So is she kind of like Ellie? I don't know. She didn't say. Uh, why? What do you think about that? Why ask that? Well, what about Ellie? Well, Ellie's the daughter. Yeah, she's 15. And she's this strong in my opinion, character in the book, female character in the book. And, but she's kind of at this really like coming of age point in her life. She's also the same age as these girls who were killed and this one girl at the beginning who they're looking for. And, um, what's that? <laughs> oh, like Alice, we all know she died. Spoiler. She, she, spoiler alert, she died. And actually Attica does have some personal experience here. And you said that is real. That's the real neighborhood. That's that is really the true. real neighborhood. I, I discovered it when my father ran for mayor of Houston. And Your two, father ran for he mayor. He ran for mayor. Did he win? No. 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 no <laughs> sorry, no. Dad. He's sorry, Dad. Uh, he lost, it was. It was close, but it was a very ugly election, and that was really the the whole birth of this book was because I lived through this crazy election with my dad. Back to the group. I like this book because. It's both crime, so there's this straight out like missing girl, you know, murder, who murdered the girl. But then there's the whole political sort of backdrop, the election, and underneath it all is a kind of a like an um, expectation of morality. So I'm just wondering about our expectation of our own 
morality in our current American culture. I was going to say something about, yeah. like, in this book, since it's politics and murder, I was thinking one of the politicians did it, because I remember a show that I used to watch a lot, Castle. A politician kill a young girl's mother. The young girl becomes a cop to find the murder, finds out it was a politician. Do you think politicians are above the law? No. They think they, 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 so. Yeah, most of them. What do you mean, most of them? Bernie Sanders is the same. What do you mean, most of them? Huh? Can you explain? <laughs> yeah. Like, sometimes they think they don't have to abide by what, what was preset. Like, what was already set before them, before or during, you know? They think that because they're in this position where they're higher, they have more power than everyone, that they can abuse it and live above it. Do you think that, I mean, we're supposed to be a democratic country. Mm -hmm. That's what they're so worried about in this book, like interrupting democracy. Like, things should go through as they're supposed to go. People should have the right to vote. People should be represented. Do you feel like the president that's about to take office represents you? No. Why not? Uh, Because he's racist. Because uh, he's ignorant. He's a bigot. And... um, because I don't, I think he he's not, he's, everybody's more um, focused on his financial, quote unquote, um, financial gain, even though he's like filed six bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. But they, they focus on him financially instead of like intellectually and politically. Yeah. I want to play you something, actually. I'm going to stop this for a second. Now we play them David Green's interview with Attica on NPR the morning after the election on November 9th, 2016. And let's listen to one more reaction this morning to yesterday's election results. Uh, We have Attica Locke on the line with us. She's a California novelist who often writes about black America. She's also a writer on the TV series Empire. Good morning to you. Good morning. So what are you thinking about this morning? I'm not crushed. I'm, I'm awake to what my country is telling me. It is hard for me to not see this through the lens of race. I've always kind of considered racism to be America's original sin. And so the incredible optimism I felt on the other side of Obama is dashed. This is a backlash to that. There is a large segment of the population for whom having a black president was such an assault on their identity that their reaction to it has no reason. It makes no logical sense. You really see this um, as, as a lot of Americans saying, we weren't ready for a black president, did not want a black president. What exactly are you saying? I think of it through the level of the psyche. I think in the sense that we are still in a patriarchy, in the sense that the president is like a father of the nation or or a man that we're meant to look up to, I think there's a large segment of white folks who could not take that. The idea that this person was above them in some way. I think it was dislocating in terms of their sense of identity. I'm struck because I spoke to many white voters um, back in 2008, some of whom even talked about being former racists and overcoming that, who (laughs) were drawn to Barack Obama and reached a comfort level with him. And what changed over eight years? Well, first of all, the man's presidency has been poisoned, you know, frankly, by voices from Fox News, by a Congress that would not engage with them, by Donald Trump himself claiming the president was not a citizen. So clearly that starts to rub away at a foundational understanding of who Barack Obama really is and what he has really done for eight years. I don't think that certain people can quite even see it. 
if that makes any sense. Well, let me ask you this. Donald Trump, in his speech early this morning, said that he is going to be a president for all Americans. Are you open-minded? Are you prepared to, to look at him as your president? No. God, no. I think he was on some good drugs last night that calmed him down. But the real Donald Trump will show up in a few months. I mean, there's no evidence to suggest that the man is able to focus, engage in a way that isn't out of control, in a way that I wouldn't scold my 10-year-old daughter if she behaved that way. The Clinton campaign was very worried about African-American turnout. Um, Yes. It it seems like there was the campaign really underperformed, especially compared to to the turnout that Barack Obama saw. Do you think African-Americans failed to turn out for Hillary Clinton? God, no. I will daily stop that narrative. More white women showed up for Donald Trump than showed up for Hillary. So I wouldn't say that in any way black folks underperformed. I would say white races overperformed. And we should be careful here because there are many Trump supporters who I've spoken to over the years who who would not consider themselves racist. You know what, though, David? I'm out with that. There's a part of me that honestly feels like that level of politeness where we're not calling things what they are is how we will never get forward. The fact of the matter is that you have to, at best, be able to tolerate racism in your president. I'm afraid we're out of time. I wish wish we could talk much more. Uh, The novelist Attica Luck, thanks so much. All right. Thank you for having me. I saw a lot of people nodding. Yeah. I agree with most of what she said, because it it is true. Trump wants to make America great again. But when I feel like when he says that, I feel like he's trying to say that he wants white to be the strongest race there is. Yeah, Aryan race. That sounds familiar. (laughs) What else did you get from what she said? A couple people were nodding and went like that. Marisol. I, I was actually surprised she actually said that because, um, I mean, I do agree to her, but I mean, um, I kind of admire her strength and her um, honesty. her honesty, yeah, that she said that because if it was me, I would have probably been like, um, I would kind of keep it on the don't, down low because I don't want to get in trouble, but I mean, I, I admire what she did right there. I love her. I want to be her best friend. She's so great. I have to say, Um, she's pretty awesome. I agree with everything she says. Um, I love that she talked about, or they kind of brought it up, um, the Trump supporters who say that they don't identify themselves as being racist Mm -hmm. or not wanting to have that discussion. And I feel like that's more dangerous than the people who are saying, this is what I believe in, this is, um, I believe in anti, you know, POC or whatever. Um, Because at least you know what you're combating. You know that this is what their beliefs are, and I can come at you with my my opinion. But if people are in denial about there even being a problem. How do you how do you combat that? Um, and again, another quote because those are my quotes. Uh, um, like if you are if you're silent in times of oppression, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. You're stepping back. You're silently choosing their side, and you're not taking action. You're a bystander. Yeah, but that's almost as dangerous, I think. Because how do you, again, how do you combat this passive racism if they're going to say we're not racist or we're not doing anything that should be, you know, considered wrong? So what are you going to do? It's a tough one. I mean, dialogue for me is a big thing, having these discussions. Um, I was actually just talking to my little brother about this yesterday. Um, he was like, well, what do you do? I'm like, if you, if you have that cynical attitude that nothing is going to change, then no change will come. And then I was giving examples like back in like the civil rights movement was happening. If people back then said, you know, what's the point? The racism's always going to exist. Let's not fight it. 
um, we wouldn't get the change we have now. And it's a slow change because America's history is very young. It's a slow uphill battle, but we are slowly making progress. Attica and I touch on education and about taking risks when you're young. My hope is that the messaging about the value of higher education is still deeply landing with black and brown folks. And I I want to say that it is. I'm, you know, I don't have my finger as much on the pulse of young folks as probably you do in the work that you do. But my hope is that um, culturally, minorities have always kind of known we got to do a little bit extra. <laughs> and part of that extra to get ahead is education. Um, and I think that a college education has... Um, just tremendous value in terms of to the degree that you're able. And I'm not everybody's able to go to college without the weight of extra jobs and still having to contribute to the family and all of this kind of stuff. But there is still value in a space in your life at a very young age being carved out that's just about you. Wow. Just just hang out in this for a minute. Your number one thing is to think, to grow. Um, to grow your mind, your heart, um, your critical thinking skills. That The value in that is huge. Um, and so I'm just always a proponent of um, school. What's going to happen to these students, I hope, is that what is uncomfortable for them will be normal for their children. That would be amazing. Because it, it's it's seeing your parents and older siblings and cousins that's what normalizes it. Like, you know what I mean? That's like, yeah. I knew that my parents went to college. My older sister went to college. So I kind of knew that's just kind of what you do. Um, so that that there's, if there, if I can impart to these young women and young boys, men, I should say young men, <laughs> what you're doing, um, you're kind of like a soldier on a bigger journey. What you're doing is heroic and it hurts like hell in the moment, but you're setting something up for everybody that's coming behind you. That is incredibly encouraging because most of them have younger siblings. Yes. Yeah. And they're going to have kids one day. And yeah. and their kids will see my mom did it, my dad did it. However hard you think it is to fall at 20, think about what it will be like to take a risk at 50. Better to take a risk now when you're young, when you can get up and bounce back faster. You don't have kids yet, hopefully, than to try to take a risk when you're much older. In some way, um, lean into... The courage, the inherent courage of your youth, um, because I think youth are inherently courageous. Some of it is, sorry, young people, that they say your brains don't stop forming until you're 25. 25. But there, there, may, there may be a grace in the fact that there's a kind of, I don't want to say recklessness, but I do if I'm talking about joy. And again, I'm saying that from a place of privilege, but I'm also encouraging young folks to try it. What would reckless joy feel like? What would reckless joy um, look like? Um, reckless joy. We got to put that on a T-shirt, <laughs> right? What would you like people to continue to think about after reading one of your books? What's the lasting impression of a lockbook? The one that's present for me because I'm looking at it right now is Pleasantville, and the number one thing I I think I want people to think about that about that book is the ways in which we can survive change. Change is survivable. Um, like you said, when we were talking, I think maybe before we even started recording about in that book, Jay Porter has lost his wife. And in that book, Pleasantville is losing its sense of itself, what it used to be back in the 40s when it was all black and everybody there had money. And it's not all black anymore. And everybody there doesn't have money. And it's kind of crumbling in a way. 
And I think both Jay and the town of Pleasantville in that book are trying to navigate change. And I think they both survive it well. And I think that's what I would want people to take away from that book, mostly. Yeah. Thank you, Attica Locke. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Real Word Podcast, produced by Reading Opens Minds and edited by Saul Black. You can find us on iTunes or the podcast app on your phone or on the web at lareviewofbooks.org slash the-real-word. Thank you to the LA Review of Books staff and supporters for giving this podcast a home and some tender loving care. For more information about Reading Opens Minds, go to readingopensminds.org. There you can subscribe to our newsletter and see what else we're up to. Special thanks for this episode goes to Jim Lane and Emerson College in Los Angeles for donating their studio to us for a day, and Ernesto Oriano for sound engineering, and Stacy Reeder and Mercedes Vasquez for facilitating the book club. In the next and last episode of this season of The Real Word, we'll do a wrap-up of the season and the show and touch base with one of our book club alumni who is now a sophomore in college. Until then... I'm Lauren, wishing you happy reading.